Hello, I am Sean Smith. I am the host of One More Time, and today we bring you a mini ban. It's probably fairly obvious that since I created this podcast that I'm a pretty big fan of podcasts. I will admit, though, I do not habitually listen to banned podcasts. None really caught my attention. That is until I listened to Everything Banned by Mark Connor. This is a fantastic interview-based podcast. He gets a mix of some of the best-known names in bands to some people we might not know but who have really interesting insights. He did a quick promo of his podcast during our last episode, and now we'll feature one of his episodes in full during our mini-band. He recommended the episode featuring Tiffany Hits, and I will say it was a great recommendation. I just finished listening to it, and if you have not heard it, make sure you listen all the way through to the end to where she talks about her growth mindset concepts. Those are incredibly important. I think you'll get a lot out of it. I've also listened to the episodes with Johan Demai, Gerard Schwartz, and Jerry Junkin, and all of them were spectacular, and I look forward to binging the rest of them. To subscribe to Mark's podcast, you can do so through Apple Podcasts, or you can go to his website, and that is www.markjconnor.com slash eb hyphen podcast. And now Mark will talk with Tiffany Hits. Oh, my college band director is I I love him and his wife so much that when Andrew and I got married, we asked him to uh, marry us. Oh, wow. He is that like he's he's that guy in my life. Like I. Yeah. <laughs> you went to VCU. Was, Who was that? I, it was Terry Austin. Absolutely phenomenal person like person. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everything Band, a podcast that features conversations with composers, conductors, and performers of music for winds and percussion. My name is Mark Connor. I'm a composer, and this is episode number 23. My guest for this special back-to-school episode is Tiffany Hitz, who teaches band at Rachel Carson Middle School in Fairfax County, Virginia. Before we begin, I'd like to give a huge thank you to composer Brandon Nelson for his contribution to my Patreon page and his support of this podcast. Brandon is a prolific composer for many genres and styles, but his band music is published by Amano Music. If you'd like to join Brandon and support the show, you can find my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Mark J. Connor. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. Thanks for joining me. My gosh, thank you. Uh, so we met a few weeks ago at the UNCG band camps. You were a guest conductor of one of the bands, and I managed to sneak my way into your rehearsal. It was awesome that you came by. Uh, it, was, it was really great to meet you. It was wonderful to watch you work and to, and to kind of um, get a sense of who you are before we chatted. Um, I will full disclosure, your husband is Andrew Hitz, who appeared on the podcast. Yeah. And he recommended you and... Um, you have quite a program in Fairfax County, I understand. Yeah, it's great. It's a great place to be. So what's the school district like and how many students do you have in your bands? Uh, it's a very large school district. I, I'm not great with numbers of, you know, within the country, but I know it's one of the larger districts in the country. Um, we have uh, two, roughly 275 students in the program. Um but the county itself has a lot of students involved in in arts and fine arts and music. Um, and it's really quite a collaborative uh, community. I would say any teacher would help you with anything that you needed. Uh, people are always there to 
to kind of have your back and everybody wants everyone to do well. So it's just really special. Now, how many bands do you have? Um, gosh, well, I mean, officially we have beginning, intermediate and advanced, but within that we've got two advanced bands. We have two intermediate bands and then we pull the percussion class that plays with the beginning and intermediate bands. They, we pull that out. So although officially it's three bands, it ends up being more like five. And how many directors do you work with? There are two of us that are full-time uh, band teachers at the uh-huh. school. Wow. Yeah. Only two of you handle that many kids. Oh, it's, um, it's very common. Uh, we're actually really fortunate uh, as far as the county goes, really fortunate that we do have two full-time teachers because a lot of schools have a full-time teacher and then someone that is part-time and then also teaching at another school. So we consider ourselves quite lucky. It's remarkable to me that two of you can do all that work. Oh, well, I mean, that's nice of you to say, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. I mean, for me, I think I've, I've always felt like the band is a place where anybody is welcome and the more the merrier. Um, and sometimes with large groups, our largest band last year was 85. Um, with a large group, it's harder to get to every individual student the way that you want to, but there is, you know, there's safety in numbers, there's learning in numbers. Um, it just builds the community and builds the team a little bit stronger because they've, they've got more, more forces with them. So I actually like it. Sure. All right. So we're going to come back around to your teaching advice and sort of the nuts and bolts of what you're doing in the school. Um, but before we do that, I want to ask about your origin story. So what's your background in music and how did you get started? Yeah, well, I mean, I played in school band. Um, I actually started in orchestra. I started on violin when I was in, must have been fifth grade. Um, And at the end of the year, I had not spent much time practicing. So as typical, I feel like I know when parents come to me and say, my student is bored. I'm like, ah, there's more to the story because I was that kid. I just didn't really, I wasn't really getting it um, because I didn't put enough work into it. I didn't put enough effort into it. So the next school year I had the opportunity to do band and I told my parents I wanted to do band and they said, well, we're not getting another instrument right now. And my sister had played clarinet. So they said, if you'll play clarinet, then great, you can do it. So I did it. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I played th- that year in elementary school and then I went to junior high and played. And then my seventh grade year, school year, my band director just one day randomly in class said, we need more French horns. And um, I have to be honest, at the time I thought it was the English horn. And that was my mom's favorite instrument. So I was all about playing that. I was like, my mom is going to love this. So I raised my hand and very enthusiastically said, I will do that. And he sent me to a room and told me to get a horn and start working. And I went back in that room and 10 minutes later, he's calling for me, wondering where I am. And I'm just going, I don't see any any French horns in here? And he was like, that's all that's in there. Well, of course I was looking for an English horn. Um, but I switched to French horn and I kind of, I kind of feel like as the story goes, that's where it all began. Um, because I liked being in band. I liked all of the things about being in band, but then once I found the horn, I loved it and it just kind of became part of who I was. Yeah. So what about was that the most influential director? Was that the the one who set you on the course or were there others along the way? 
Well, there've been a lot. I am incredibly fortunate. Um, but he was for sure, uh, that was Mr. Hamilton who I had in junior high. And then we moved away. My dad was in the Navy. So we moved away for one year and then, uh, moved back again to the, the same house and everything. And when we moved back, the high school was opening and he was the high school director. So he was basically for all intents and purposes, the only band director that I had in school. Um, and yeah, my gosh. And he's just such a special man. Everybody who has had him, you know, just, we all feel exactly the same way. Um, he just was a great man and he was tough and he was funny and you could make fun of him. And it was just kind of the whole thing rolled in. Um, I wanted to be in band for lots of reasons. He was one of them for sure. Um, and just really, really kind of set my course, I think for me. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, you know, this is a recurring theme. Almost everyone I know who's a professional musician or a teacher looks back on someone like that. That's why I asked that question. Yeah. So would you say that your experience in junior high and high school has influenced how you teach now? Definitely. Um, I think a lot of the things at, you know, at the time I didn't know that I was going to be teaching band. Um, but the things that I learned from being in band, the, from being part of that group, you know, I was, I was taught a love of music. Uh, I was taught that it was important to care about each other and take care of each other. Uh, that whole team concept. Um, I was taught to desire excellence and to work for excellence and that working hard, you know, paid off and it made you better. And those are, those are things that I've taken with me through life. And now as a teacher, I, I try to emulate building those types of feelings in my students. Definitely when I was in school, the band room was the place to be. Um, and I, I desperately want that for my students as well. I want them to not only feel that connected to me and their instrument, but I want them to have that community in that safe place. Yeah, I watched you work like I talked like I mentioned earlier. I saw you work and one of the things I was struck by is how fast-paced you you were. You you never let a moment go by. And having taught junior high, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. It's funny cuz I do get made fun of by some people about like, you know, I just go too fast and and I'm like, "Nope, we got to we got got to keep moving. We got too much stuff to do." Well, I was going to say I think the kids really responded to that. There were a few, you know, in the back who were, you know, yeah. wiggling, doing their thing, but for the most part, the kids were very attentive. And you, you, you constantly stressed to them that you were doing something as a whole, as a, as a band, you were creating something bigger than the individual. And so do you think that's one of the key things for you as far as definitely, I'm sorry to have cut you off, but, uh, it's definitely one of the key things is, you know, we all have a responsibility to each other. Uh, we have a role that we play and, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's cliche, but no one's bigger than the band. Like no one's more important. Um, I spent, I I spent some silly time when I started teaching, you know, seeing like a really great student and thinking that that student was so important because of X, Y, and Z. And in, in helping that student feel like they were so important, I think often they stopped seeing how they fit into the group and it was to the detriment of the whole yeah. Yeah. Cause then others start to feel that they're not as valuable too. It has multiple repercussions when you do that. 
It really does. And and then they stop thinking that they have a responsibility to others. It's they start thinking they're they're more important. And and now it's I, I definitely feel like that's turned and and no one is more important, including myself. Um, you know, we all we all are making music together and we're all part of that process. And we all have to be actively engaged at all times when they're counting, you know, when they're counting rests, they have to know what's going on and they have to be listening to how people are playing things so they can phrase things the same way or articulate the same way. And when they're playing, they have to be listening to each other to know that they're blending with each other and that their intonation is matching and that their tone quality is matching. And just that they're, you know, that they're, they're contributing to the whole Um, And that's, you know, that I I love camp for that, especially for that reason, because I feel like making the band is that's the that's the good stuff. That's the hard stuff, but that's the good stuff. And when you're when you do a camp and like you walk in and I feel like that first Sunday night rehearsal, that's the first thing we talk about is like, yeah, notes and rhythms, whatever, like we're all going to do that. But we got to make a band. And when they start locking into that. And when you, when you can stop saying, I hear one trumpet sticking out. And then, you know, when you get to the point where you don't notice that anymore, because they're all working hard to be a team. And then that's a team with the brass section and so on and so forth. It's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, I did this, I had the same situation when I first started teaching, I had a, a real star player. I was a high school teacher at first yeah, and had a real star player who ended up going on to Berkeley um, for saxophone. And I, I sort of catered to him a little too much the first couple of years. And I'm wondering if that's not our ego talking a little bit that we're trying to shape someone to replace us kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I know. Um, I, I, when you say the ego thing, I respond to it in a different way that I agree with. And I think part of it is when you have that really strong player, you know, they make the band sound better. They do. And, you know, and so there's that piece too of it's like, well, gosh, if I don't have, you know, if I don't have that tuba player or if I don't have that flute player playing these solos or whatever, it's you, you take on that it's going to be a reflection of you and that thus them being there and playing it makes it a reflection of you and you got to get it out of your own way. It's true. And, you know, that leads me to think about literature, too, because often we have to choose literature based on the kids we have. I agree. But I think you also need to train kids to be the second the the second person to be able to play that if that person's sick or whatever. So, you know, I bet I understand what you're saying um, but completely because you certainly you can't play a you can't play a piece with a big oboe solo if you don't have an oboist. Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Can you talk about maybe your first couple of years or maybe what you would say to a young teacher who's in their first or second year? Yeah. Um, an act, I'm, I've had some recent experience with this and I feel like the, I say the same thing every time. My first most important point is to find your people, um, find your team. Uh, I'm very lucky. I was able to take that whole idea of the band being my social circle. And I have taken that through my entire life. And even now my absolute closest friends are all, musicians or music teachers, I shouldn't say all because some, there are certainly some people I'm very close to and I love that are not, but, um, I have a very strong core of friends who are all teachers, um, or musicians and they get it and they keep me grounded. Um, they're the people that I can go to 
and say, you know, well, this isn't working for me. What would you do? Um, they're the people I, that I can go to and say, um, here's an issue I'm having, um, with picking music for a program. Are there pieces you suggest? Um, and they know me and I know them and they know how I think. And so, you know, a lot of times one person's answer would be different for different people. Um, and so they can kind of take into consideration who I am and what I'm about and help me find solutions that will be good for me. Um, they're just, they're like my backup. Uh, I don't know what I would do without that, especially, um, you know, I, I have a friend who actually, I think you met when you were at UNCG and, um, and she visits, she comes up and works with my students. Uh, she watches me teach and gives me um, feedback. She watches me conduct and gives me feedback. Uh, she's made me definitely a better teacher and a better musician. And also, by the way, is just is a friend. So I just I feel like there's there's a real safe uh, it's a real safe relationship. So I can ask the dumb questions. Not that you shouldn't be able to to anyone, but I can ask the dumb questions. I can. Um, I can be completely vulnerable and say, listen, I don't just get this. I, I, I don't know what to do. And you have people that will help you. And I think that's the, the first thing that I tell people, because I remember finishing, I, I had an incredible undergrad experience. Oh my gosh. And I had a great student teaching experience, but I tell you what, by the end of student teaching, I was just like, let me at the kids. I'm ready. I want my own program. And I think it took me like three days of teaching before I was like, I want my cooperating teacher back. Um, so just, you know, reminding them, like, you've got people, like, reach out, ask for help. Um, people want to help. Find people that you can help and collaborate with because that helps you grow and it helps you think, you know, think more than just who you are. Yeah, I think it, that that's an interesting comment because I was just talking about this with someone. I went to a reading session and it seems like also teachers need to have people that they trust, because I think it's really difficult to invite someone into your band room because you're afraid of the criticism. You're afraid of being judged. Uh, I, and maybe I'm assuming too much. No, I think you're right on the money, but I'll take it a step further and say, stop being afraid of being judged. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Someone's going to come in and give and, and tell you advice that you weren't prepared for. And it's going to, even if you don't take that advice, it's going to make you be more reflective. It's going to make you think about things a little bit different. And at the very least, it's going to make you grow. Whether you adapt that, whether you change anything, you now are fundamentally changed in your openness to thinking about new ideas. Absolutely. And there's so many people in every community who can help, who can come and listen, composers and other conductors and other teachers and and it, there, there are vast resources out there, as we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah, people want to help, too. I mean, we're I'm in a very wealthy county, but in in my school, the we don't have a lot of every school is different in my county and we don't have a lot of a lot of money. And we spend a lot of money on instruments and music and, you know, supply type things. And so we don't have a lot of money to pay people to come in. And you would be surprised the number of people that are just willing to come in and help because people, I mean, this community of music, everybody just wants everybody to do better sincerely. So whether you're in the middle of nowhere or whether you're in Fairfax County with, you know, 26 other middle schools, uh, just ask for help, you know, and people will help you. And don't be afraid to have them say, 
you know, anybody who's going to make a snap judgment about you or is going to watch you teach and then decide who you are as a teacher in that moment, um, you don't need to spend any time worrying about that. You yeah. know, you, you just can't. It's hard. It's hard. Even as a composer, I do that. You know, I, you, we get that imposter syndrome. We get that belief that we're not good enough to do what we're doing. But man, if you can push through that, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's eye opening to me. And I, I want, you know, I want more, I, it's taken me a long time. I, I say it like it's an easy thing. It's taken me, you know, it's taken me time to get there, but now I'm just like the more the merrier come on in. And I, I kind of have a, a rule anytime, you know, anybody can come in rehearsal, but if you come in, I want you to help. It, even if it's at the end of rehearsal, you tell me what you heard differently than what I heard or tell me what I missed or tell me how I'm doing something that's confusing or saying something that's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you get better. Agreed. So it is the beginning of the school year and you, I know that you're beginning your preparations. When do you, when do you start school? We start back, I guess I've got another week uh, before the, uh, just over a week before teacher work days. We're actually going back a week earlier than we ever have the whole time I've been in the county um, because we had missed so much snow for a couple of years. We got a special permission to start the week before Labor Day, which I know a lot of people are already in. So, uh, you know, oh, woe is me, but we'll, we'll go back a week early this year. Yeah. So this, for the frame of reference, we're recording this on August 7th and that's a very sad day. Today's the day that David Muslanka passed away. So yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come and we'll talk about him at the end of the podcast. I'm sure we'll spend a little time with that, but I just want to give the listeners a sense of where we are in the year as we talk. Yeah. And so as you prepare for those first couple days, what are your objectives in the first week or two weeks of school with your ensembles? What are you trying to establish? Um, well, for me, we're it, this year is going to be slightly different than it's been for me in a long time because we've changed our bell schedule and we're going to be on a full block, um, which I haven't taught on in a while. So um, I'll see some of my kids three days that first week and some of my kids two days. And that'll be, that'll be a shift for me, I think. But, um, within that time, um, I will definitely, the first thing is just getting the routines down, um, helping students know, you know, what the expectations are every class and how we do things. Because once we take the instruments out, then that opens up a whole nother issue. So I want them to make sure, you know, they have lockers assigned, um, that I get them the materials that they need. We take a little bit of time getting to know each other, them getting to know me and me getting to know them. Um, and just establishing those routines. And we come back to those a lot just because you need to have the procedure down in order to, to make the rest of it work. Sure. And how many beginners do you start with? Um, it varies from year to year. And I actually haven't taught the beginners at my current school. My my teammate does. But roughly anywhere between 12 and 25 um, in in our in our school, we do in Fairfax County have fifth and sixth grade band, which is part of the elementary school. And we my school is only grade seven and eight. Oh, I see. OK, so you don't have so many beginners. So most of your students already have some patterns and some habits developed. Absolutely. So what does your year look like beyond the first couple of weeks? How many concerts do you do a year? And then what, what's the fall shaping up to be? Sure. Um, we do our first concert for all the students is in November. 
And then we have another concert, February, March, depending on the group. And then again in May, and then we do a spring trip in June. Um, Usually it's three sets of music, although there'll be a little shifting, um, especially at the end of the year, like the May concert, we might do five tunes, but then we go on our trip and only play two or three of those. Um, and then in the February, March time, that's our assessment. So we do pre-assessment concert, um, and then also do assess assessment. So we repeat that music. And then the November concert is just the November concert. We do also have a few, a few extra things. The symphonic band plays for the rising seventh graders and actually the entire school, um, in December. And we usually pull out some new music for that, play some holiday type stuff. And then we play for the rising seventh grade parents as well in February. I see. So can you give me a a sense of the level of your groups? Like, so that symphonic band, what kind of literature did you play last year or do you have planned coming up? Yeah. Um, last year we did, uh, we did American river songs by Pierre Laplante. Mm-hmm. Um, we did sovereign variants by Kernow. Um, they played Talis prelude in the fall. Uh, we did the KV fear by Markowski. Do you know that tune? I don't. It's awesome. I'll look it up. <laughs> um, yeah, you should. It's, it's really, it's programmatic and it's got a, a little movie feel to it. And the kids just my gosh, they love it. Um, so that's the symphonic band there in Virginia. It's a grade four band. Um, I know everyone's music grading is a little bit different, Mm -hmm. but basically that band is a grade four band. Our concert band is grade three. Our intermediate bands are grade two, one kind of in there depending on, but we don't pick pieces, you know, based on that so much. Okay, sure. Just as an aside, what high school do you feed into? We feed several different high schools. Um, we're a little bit of an anomaly of we're not part of one set pyramid. Um, we feed Westfield High School, Chantilly High School, South Lakes, Oakton, and let's see, I did Westfield, South Lakes, Chantilly, Oakton, and then um, yeah, and then we have a number of students that go to TJ, um, which is a science and technology school in the county. So how do you choose music? Do do you have sort of a criteria in your mind when you're looking at a piece of music? Hmm. Um, Well, I mean, it's got to be good music. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to be something that I'm going to enjoy working on because if I'm not going to enjoy it and I'm not bought into it, then the students certainly aren't going to be. Um, But that has become increasingly important to me that it's it's good music. Um, It's got a good melody. It's got something to tell. Um, I I feel like I am now gravitating towards that secondary to, well, this fits my band. I feel like that's you know, that might have been maybe how I started out a little bit more. And now I just want I want to put great literature in front of them and expose them to a lot of different styles and a lot of different storytelling and a lot of different composers to just give them a fuller picture of what is available. Certainly it's important that the music is accessible. I want them to be, um, I want them to be successful, but I want to, to push them as well, but not just in the notes and rhythms category. I, I feel like now it's more important to me to push them musically. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have composers in to visit the kids? Yeah. 
Absolutely. This is something that I, I actually feel pretty passionate about. Um, I have a pretty good relationship with Brian Baumages, um, who writes for all levels. And um, he's a great friend. And I just I love and respect him so much. We we kind of got started about the same time. And I was fortunate enough when he was starting at FJH, um, he had to write you know, pieces. And he said, he called me and he was like, well, I, I figure if I have to write pieces, I might as well get inspiration from my friends. And I had just moved to the DC area and he said, help me find inspiration for a piece. And we talked about, we talked about the things I loved about DC. And I loved the fact that I was so close to the Smithsonian museums. And out of this conversation, he did some research and it came a piece called Smithsonian suite that he wrote. Um, and actually, I've kind of been playing it a lot this year. I played it this summer at camp because one of the movements is the African Art Museum. And it just, you know, this was, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And the museum just opened, um, which at the time when we were discussing the piece, he said, you know, this is something that's going to be opened and it just opened. So it's kind of exciting to do that. Um and after working with him on that, uh, he did another piece for another elementary band I was teaching and we were able to bring him in. Uh, in fact, he came to Carson last school year. Um, if I don't have, everything gets blurry for me, but I believe it was last school year. He came in and did a residency. He did the same thing at the the school I was at before um, and came in and worked with the kids on his music, talked to them about music. Um, Jim Meredith, who is a retired band director in Virginia, who's also a wonderful composer, um, he wrote a piece when Andrew and I had our son, he wrote a piece for us um, as a, a baby gift. And it was a piece for middle school band and tuba solo. Um, and Andrew played that with the band and Jim came in and worked with the band and has since been up to work with us and help us. And I love the perspective he has because he spent a career teaching middle school band and is also a composer. So I just feel like he's got a really special perception of what the kids are doing and how to get them to do what we want them to be doing. Um, and then this year, uh, just this past spring, Michael Sweeney Skyped in with us, um, which was just such a special honor because he's, he's such a kind and incredible man and very inspiring to the kids. And then um, the very end of the year, Another composer named Gordy Hobb, who writes, I went to college with him and he is a composer for the Star Wars video games. Um, and he Skyped in with us to talk about writing for video games. And actually, it's on my list to talk to him to see if if he'll uh, if he'll he's in L.A. So it'll be hard to get him physically to us. But I want to talk to him about getting a piece for middle school band written because um, I think he's got he's got such a sound that the kids would gravitate to. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So what kind of value are you looking for? What, I mean, what kind of value does that bring to the kids? Do you think in your estimation? I think it's a game changer. Um, I, and I think if you, if anybody listening who has not had a composer in their band room, whether in person or in Skype, via Skype or FaceTime or whatever you want to do, um, please do it as soon as possible. Um, I think one of the most important responsibilities that I try to teach the students is that as musicians, it's our job to put life into this music that composers such as yourself have spent, you know, have agonized over, have spent all their time and energy to work on. And we need to honor the intent of the piece. We need to honor 
who the composer is. We need to honor their viewpoint, the work that they put in, you know, every nuance of the piece. We have to do all the things all the time. And I think for kids, a lot of times that's just it's so out there. And then they meet the composer. I mean, the first time Brian walked in the room, you know, they just they sat a little taller and they they just had a a look of a little bit more pride on their faces because, you know, they wanted to do that for a composer. They the gift that a musician can do to a composer is to to respect that music and to to treat it as it needs to be. And I think any opportunity they have to to be put in that position, it carries over to other pieces and it helps the students look beyond the notes and rhythms on the page and know that, okay, it, it's our responsibility to give the audience an experience. And we have to tell them a story that someone else has written for us. And we have to convince them that this is our story and, you know, take them somewhere. And I think when they meet that composer, they just feel an extra responsibility towards that, which, as I said, it carries over to all the music that we do. Yeah. Have you ever done a commission or a consortium? I was part of um, I was part of the consortium for um, uh, John Mackey's 13 a couple years ago. And um, actually, George Mason University is really close to my school. And they had one of the doctoral students had put together a program for composition students to get an opportunity to practice their skills. And one of their students, Cooper Minnis, uh, wrote a piece um, for our band at Carson and we were able to collaborate. It was, it was neat because as he was writing the piece, we were able to play it and then give him feedback and have a little bit of a back and forth before he settled on what the piece actually was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I'd really encourage those who are thinking about commissions, maybe to look into consortiums because they can really sort of make it accessible to get a composer in and to have a piece written for you. Just share the load oh. a little bit. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a composer, I have to agree with you on all of this. I mean, I, I, I love when people send me messages about my music and that they're playing my music and I'm more than happy to answer any questions. It, it's, it's why I do it. It's not to be, <laughs> to hide in a corner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. you're communicating, you know, you're, but you don't have, it's, I, I often think the, the composer's role in all of this, it's just, I don't know. It's so massive and so scary. And yet you don't get to, you don't get to live it every day. You know, you spend all this time writing a piece and then you just put it out there in the world. And it probably is great to hear that people are playing it or loving it or that they have questions or I don't know. Do people ever send you recordings of pieces? I haven't gotten recordings, although I've, I've had a couple links sent to me, yeah. but not, um, not recordings. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had more people reaching out. I feel like people think that composers aren't real in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the students, yeah, this, I mean, when Brian Balmage just walks in and he's, you know, he's not, he's, he's maybe around 40, I guess. Right. He walks in and all of a sudden they're like, they look and they're like, okay, this is a real person. And he's like a young person and he's got energy and, you know, it's, it is no longer just some name at the top of the page. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. Oh yeah. <laughs> so what do you think composers need to do better with writing for band? It's so tricky because I ask a lot of times I ask composers, I, I asked you the same thing when we were, when we were talking at UNCG, you know, about like when you're writing, are you writing for a specific group or a specific level or does just an idea come to you? And I know that 
composers that are, you know, trying to get their music published and want it played, like there are parameters they need to work within. And, you know, just the, um, the expectations on the students have to be appropriate for that piece. But for me, I kind of am starting to feel like, you know, just write the music that you want to write, write the melody, the way you hear it and write the harmonies, the way you hear it. And then let us figure out, let us, you know, as teachers, let us put that responsibility on us, but you know, don't, don't water it down for us. Um, because we need that like incredible music and we need that, you know, we, we just, we need what your, what your natural thought is. Um, I just feel like that's probably the best product you can put out is what you really want. And I know, you know, it's, it's tough cause I'm teaching middle school band, right. And if a piece has, you know, the range is too high in the trumpets, then I know it's not going to work or whatever. So I, I know as I'm saying this, I can't, you know, I can't live at a hundred percent, but you know, I, I just, I want you to be able to write what you feel and, and tell the story that you want to tell and not feel like you're bound to all these parameters. I think it's a tricky balance that composers, especially for composers of school music, really walk a tightrope in that way. And it's oh, something yeah, that totally. I wrestle with daily, to be honest. I bet you do. I don't know how you'd, how you'd solve it. I really don't. <laughs> well, I, Brian, actually, I listened to an interview with Brian. It might have been on your husband's show. Um, and Brian mentioned that, that it's just writing for a school ensemble is just like writing. It's just a parameter. It's like if someone says write for a brass quartet, then you will, you know, you have, you know, two trumpets, a trombone and a tuba or whatever, or a horn, whatever that ensemble is. Yeah. And then you just deal with it because it's part of the challenge. It's the same thing. When someone says, can you write something for grade one band? That's just part of the challenge of the piece. Yeah, sure. And so that makes sense. But then by the same token, you have ideas in your head and, and often I'm find myself, well, that's too syncopated or I can't do that or I can't do that. And that, that be, that's when the frustration grows. But, you know, it usually works out. Um, okay, so this reminds me of your watching your rehearsal. You're, you're so energetic, Tiffany, um, that I, I completely forgot to ask you about your study guides. Oh, yeah. This is a great thing you're doing and something that I think teachers, especially young teachers, can latch on to. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so the idea behind it, and I, uh, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of stole it from uh, one of Brian's pieces. At the very bottom of the beginning level pieces in the FGH series, they have uh, what they call a jump start, and it has several lines that relate to the piece. And so I just decided, well, why am I only doing this for my my beginningish type pieces? And so now for any piece that, you know, any piece that I feel like I'm going to spend a significant amount of time on, I'll write a study guide where I kind of make the piece a method book. I think um, my old music supervisor had had put it that way. He said it's like a method book. And I was like, that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, you work in that key or that that tonal center uh, that the piece is going to be in. So you write some corrals. Um, have some scale exercises and then any of the rhythms that you think are going to be tricky and maybe like maybe only the trumpets and flutes and clarinets have this tricky syncopated rhythm like you were just talking about. But we put it in the study guide and then everybody plays it and everybody learns it. 
and they help each other and they're all engaged when you're working on it and they all get to play that really cool rhythm. Um, or maybe it's a tough, um, a tough interval that the brass players are struggling to, to hit every time I'm a horn player. So, you know, I know if you, if you can't hear the interval, you can't play the interval, but then I'll put that interval in everybody's part or that line in everyone's part. So we're all helping each other learn it. Um, if there's a technical passage, you know, maybe you have like a, a great tuba player, but they're not going to have that part in their music. Um, but they could, you know, they'd love the, the opportunity to play that technical passage or that that great melody. You put the melody in everybody's part. It's it's predominantly a unison, um, unison exercises except for the chorale. And just anything that's going to be tricky in the piece, you put it in there for everybody to play. Um, and I, I started out doing it when I started guest conducting because I thought, you know, I, I kind of was faced with how am I possibly going to get through all of this music in such a short amount of time? What is the most efficient way for me to teach them? So I started doing the study guides for that. And then I, I kind of quickly realized that in a, in a guest conducting situation, usually the kids need a little time to not play. Um, so it, it didn't work as well there, but I found that in school it works ideally because it takes care of discipline issues um, because kids only misbehave when they're bored or when they're not doing something and now they're playing all the time. Um, it gets everybody engaged in the whole the whole idea of the piece. And then all of a sudden when you're talking about musical things in a piece and you say, well, you know, can we have more melody? Everybody knows now, oh, I know what the melody is because I got to play it. Um, and it kind of helps them understand how the piece is made what's in the piece. Um, and I just, I think it makes teaching a lot easier. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's great score study for me because I'll go through a piece with a fine tooth comb because I want to anticipate everything that I know I'm, I know the students are going to need extra support with. Yeah. That I have three thoughts that come to my mind listening to you talk about that is one, it teaches the students to listen across the band because they know what other people are playing. So they can pick out yep. the important parts. And two, it, it also forces you to really study that score and really dig into that music. And as you and I know, anytime in front of ensemble, that score study is so crucial to getting things done. Yeah, and absolutely. The, the other thing that this leads me to, have you thought about doing these and publishing these? Talking to maybe Brian at FJH and doing some of these study guides, making them available you know, that's interesting because it is an idea that I've kind of batted around a little bit. And um, FGH actually was kind enough. Uh, I presented a session at the main music educators this past year about this, and they were kind enough to give me permission to share the study guide um, with all the participants at the clinic. And they even sent me scores of the piece that I that I used um, to give to everyone. And, and that I really appreciated that. I didn't, I didn't go much further than that. I have thought about talking to Brian about it. I've also thought about talking to Michael Sweeney about it. Um, you know, because how Leonard, like, I know the rights would be an issue, I guess. Well, making they, sure. yeah, I mean the copyright's the issue, but the publisher owns the copyright. It's there. It's, they would have to give you permission. Yeah, sure. But I, I, it's not an idea I have not thought about. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I was going to say my, your, your husband has a podcast called the entrepreneurial musician. <laughs> My pie in the sky, I'll tell you really, my pie in the sky idea is that I figure out some way to host a huge repository of this and 
anybody can access anything that's there, but their buy-in is that they have to share one. They have to create and share one companion guide to go with a piece and they have to share that. And then they have access to all the others. So we, I just think as a, as an entire community of band, I mean, gosh, how many could we have in no time and your whole buy-in to be able to access all of them was just to create one. Um, and that's, that's kind of my pie in the sky is I just to help, you know, we, we just all, all together, we're stronger than one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know as a composer, I'd love to have, have to see what someone would do for one of my pieces, because I'm sure they would see it in a different way than even I wrote it. Oh, that's cool. It'd be fascinating. All right. So I, I have just a couple more questions for you. Um, you have such good advice. Do you have sort of anything on the podium, any sort of technical advice for for young teachers? Um, sure. Uh I, I think definitely work on your conducting. <laughs> um, I think that's one thing that I have found to be really important. Um, you can get a lot done if you're adept at communicating without words. Um, and I, so I, I encourage people to, to do that. I, in fact, this summer I took a conducting symposium and it had been many years and I, I learned so much and I, now I, I'm ready to do another one next summer. I just, I think it's so powerful. Um, but you mentioned, you know, we both did, I guess, score study. Um, I, you know, I had a conversation with a teacher last year who was, kind of feeling a little bit low about things and saying, you know, I, I don't, I'm in a rut and I feel like I'm just yelling at my students. And, you know, and I, I asked, I, I tend to be kind of blunt about things like this. And I said, well, you know, how much time do you spend score studying? And the response back was kind of silence. And they said, yeah, probably not enough. And I said, well, definitely not enough. If what, based on what they're telling me, you know, we run into, we're left to our own devices a lot, I guess I should say. And, you know, we just have to prepare this music in X amount of time, right? But that doesn't mean if we have six weeks to prepare a concert, that should not mean that the band director is learning that piece with the students. And I think too often that happens. Um, and that leads to rehearsals that are kind of, you know, well, let's see what happens today. And you're just always kind of, you know, doing little, little band-aids here and there, but never really getting to the heart of what the piece is telling. Um, and it's hard. I kind of live in a world where I want all the things all the time. I want great sound. Number one, all the time. I want the right articulations. I want great dynamics. I want shaping of phrases. Um, I want you to tell me a story, but if I'm just every day playing a piece from the beginning and stopping when there's a problem, you know, I'm, I'm number one, teaching the kids to do that. And that's not going to be effective practice for them, but I'm also never getting to the heart of the piece. So I think knowing the piece and really knowing the piece and planning your rehearsals around that, um, is something as a teacher that's incredibly important. Um, I think, you know, making sure that you still play as a teacher. And I know, especially as a new teacher, that that thought can be so overwhelming because they're so busy and there's so much that's different about their life. But the second you step away from your instrument, I think you kind of, it's easy to forget what you loved about it. And so as best you can to maintain 
your skills on your instrument. It helps you be a better problem solver for the kids. When there's something they're having trouble with, you're like, yeah, I know how to fix that instead of, well, how would I have fixed that? I think it keeps your musical sensibilities maybe more natural. Um, but also if you can play in a group, I mean, gosh, in Fairfax, we're so lucky when we talk about the great thing about this County, we have the Fairfax wind symphony. Um, it's, it is not exclusively, but it is basically a band director band. And I mean, it's an incredible group of it's community band, incredible group of musicians. We've gotten to play at Midwest a couple of times. Um, just really incredible. And being in a rehearsal helps you to remember that that position your students are always in. And it helps you if you're sitting in a rehearsal where you're bored and you're able to think, well, why am I bored right now? Then you're able to affect that in your teaching for your students and make your make your rehearsals more like a rehearsal you want to be in. Or if a rehearsal is great and you feel like super pumped about it, it's like, what about that was so awesome? How can I replicate for that for my students? But I think it keep, it keeps that perspective fresh. Um, and I guess maybe the last thing I would say is also like demo for your kids demo on your main instrument, but also demo on other instruments. Um, I keep, I keep beside me at school, a trumpet, a flute, a clarinet and a trombone handy. And whenever I guest conduct, I bring a trumpet and a clarinet with me. Um, because sometimes the easiest way to communicate to a kid is to show them what it should sound like. Um, you know, to play a shape or to play an articulation for them. Um, but make sure that you have those skills. You know, I, I won't, I won't play something for a kid that I know I won't play better. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that hundred percent. So I have a couple questions I ask everyone that comes on the, the podcast. And so what's your favorite work for wind ensemble or band? Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think today I would probably be with the, the whole world and saying anything by Meslinka. Um, I listened to, to a good bit of, of his music today. Uh, give us this day I had on repeat for a little while. Um, but I think I tend, uh, additionally, as I've gotten older, I tend to gravitate towards music that makes me feel something. Um, and generally speaking a little bit slower, a little bit more introspective, um, I love uh, Eric Whitaker's October. I listen to that all the time. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. Yeah. What challenges do you think are facing music education? The biggest thing that I I feel that since when I, you know, when you talk about, well, when I was in school um, and I, I get, I kind of get asked this question a lot because we have a, a program at school where kids interview you and they always ask what's different, you know, in school and what's different in a kid's life. I just think the kids are so busy. Um, you know, when I was in school, when I was in school, <laughs> um, you know, you were in band and you did band and you did other things, but like you were committed and you practiced because you were supposed to practice. And I think that students are super well-intentioned and parents are super well-intentioned, but man, they're overextended. Um, they just do, they, they have so many things going on. Their lives are so busy and I think it's just, it causes a real struggle. Um, and it, and I think what we can do to help is, is helping students learn how to be efficient with their time, be efficient in practicing. Um, I know when I was growing up, it was all about, you know, your practice records had a time you had to practice a set amount of time. And I think now, um, you know, helping them 
no, we we're not practicing for time. Now we're practicing for goals and they can be more efficient about it. They're not watching the clock. Um, I think helping them have a sense of efficacy and, and building that, that, you know, this belief that they can do it. Um, I, I think that all those things can really help to keep them engaged and keep them involved when, you know, we have to, we can't make it harder for them. And I'm not saying that we need to make it, you know, certainly not playing an instrument and not putting the time in is easier than putting the time in. Um, but gosh, life is so much more enriched and fuller by putting the time in. So just let's not make it harder for them. Um, let's teach them how to be efficient, teach them how to practice smartly, um, make good use of their time so that, uh, so that they can, they can do it because I just think they're so busy. Yeah. It seems like they're busier than ever. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I mean, I get it, but like I I have kids in middle school that are talking about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives and they might be right, but gosh, I, sometimes I just, I want them to be in the moment. Um, and I hope that being in band sometimes can do that for them. So what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Oh, this is easy for me. Uh, don't <laughs> be afraid to fail. <laughs> really uh, just try and don't worry about being wrong. I, I have, I'm, I'm a big, uh, a big lover of um, Carol Dweck and the whole concept of a growth mindset. And I look back, I've worked worked really hard and I continue to work really hard to have a growth mindset. I look back and I see that I had a fixed mindset for a long time. I was like the stereotypical overachiever fixed mindset. Um, I never, I never wanted to, to not be perfect. And I think that really inhibited me from trying to do things from really learning things because I just wanted to have the right answer because I was so afraid of being wrong. I had a, a teacher, a very wise teacher in college who, um, I think I went in to retake an oral skills test or something. And, and she, she looked at me and she said, have you ever gotten anything other than an A? And I was kind of like, where's this going? And I, I had not. And she said, if you graduate and you get straight A's, then I will be convinced you haven't learned anything. And she was right. And it took me many years to see this, but she was right because I wasn't worried about learning. I was worried about being perfect. I was worried about getting a good grade. And now that, you know, we had that conversation earlier about welcoming people into the band room. Like I'm now, I think there was a time when I would have been petrified. I would have practiced a lesson five times before I would have let someone see it. And now I'm just like, come in and see me warts and all, and just help me be better. Because for me, I feel like I'm in a much more empowered place. Um, but I spent a lot of time not being there. And I, I just think, what did I miss out on? Um, what, what opportunities where, you know, anything that I think that I do well now, like how much better could I be at it if I had just allowed my safe, myself this, the safe space to try and to fail and then, you know, learn from that too. Yeah, that's, that's, Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. This is, this has been a great interview. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm really, I'm really appreciate what you do and um, what you're doing. Is there anything, any last minute thoughts or anything you'd like to share or promote? Um, I, you know, promoting, I, if, if any music, Virginia music teachers are listening, I'm presenting at our 
state conference in November um, with actually with a great friend of mine that I mentioned earlier, Aris Golden. We're presenting a um, a joint session um, basically about how to bring growth mindset type, how to foster that um, in your class, how to help kids latch onto that in a, you know, in a world where they, they feel like their GPA is the most important thing. And as I think about the challenges that I face from students in my college classroom, it's always that student who feels like they can't fail, who is yeah. the most difficult for me to handle. They, they, they're, they're just so concerned about never making a mistake that they, it becomes a tense situation and they don't learn. Yep. That was me. I yeah. can you imagine trying to do oral skills that way? Right. I mean, it's impossible. I, you have to fail. Right. I mean, we all fail. It's hard. And I was a horn player. Right. I mean, you think like I should have been, I should have had a leg up because that's half of playing horn. Right. And I, I was less concerned about being able to understand an interval and to know an interval and kind of wrap my brain around it as I was to in that moment for that test, be able to perform it correctly. It's I, the, I open my class the first day. And the first thing I say is this is hard. Yeah. This is the hardest class you're going to take as a music major. And now that's not true for everybody. I understand. I always get one or two students every year who don't seem to struggle with it. But yeah. for the most students, oral skills especially is a struggle. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, yeah, everything worth doing is, yeah. is difficult, right? <laughs> that's right. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful for, for every teacher, whether a formal teacher or just a life teacher, you know, every teacher that has been part of my life that has helped me kind of work past that and not, you know, not be afraid anymore. You're, you're focusing me and on my teaching. See, this is what you're oh. doing, Tiffany. This is <laughs> the master teacher in you is teaching the teacher. Oh man. <laughs> is there um, any last minute thoughts before we wrap it up? I just, I mean, back to school. I hope everybody has a great year and just, you know, keep working hard and keep making everything better. Like that's the, that's the journey. That's the goal. It's not, you know, it's not perfection. It's just keep getting better. Help your kids get better every day. Keep getting better yourself every day. Um, just keep plugging away. And I think that's where all the joy is. I'd agree. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. 